Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors, as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder-friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital, or you are looking to get your company acquired, or just need some sound financial planning, and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at pantheraadvisors.com, or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Deal Maker Show. So today we have a founder that has done it, that has done it, you know, the full cycle several times. And I think that we're gonna be learning quite a bit. We're gonna be learning about, you know, finding problems where or finding opportunities where others see problems, especially on industries that haven't been a, you know a, experiencing innovation for at least 30 or 40 years. So I guess Without further ado, Alex Casarani, welcome to the show today. Thank you for having me, Alejandro. So originally you were born in Iran, but you spent uh, you know quite a bit traveling. You know, eleven schools, six different continents. So I guess this this shaped you quite quite a bit, Alex. Yeah, actually three continents, but yes, uh, we spent. Uh, I spent about ten years in France, and then I went to boarding school in Pennsylvania. I went to college in Boston. Um, and you really learn to adapt to different environments to understand different perspectives. It was an amazing journey. Got it. And I guess, say uh, for you, how would you say that uh, that has shaped you really as a, as a person? Because here you are, changing all the time, making new friends, and you know it was a uh, you know a little bit shaky, I would say. That's right. Uh, you know, it really helps me when I uh, interact with folks to understand where they're coming from. What is their perspective? What is their pattern rec recognition for decision making? And it has to do a lot with their background, their environment, what they watch, what they see. Um, and just looking at it from a different perspective, if you switch countries or if you switch states or schools, you get to really uh, see beyond that. And that has been really interesting for me. And how would you say that this has influenced, uh, you know, you and, and the idea of becoming an entrepreneur? You know, one of the things that's really important uh, is uh, data and not to be biased based on your own experience, your own opinion. I think your own experience might create the passion. You might see a pain point that you've suffered. But then uh, following real data and real analysis might really help you assess the size of the market, the size of the problem, and how other people perceive it, even though they have been from within the industry or from outside of the industry. So really gives you a complete, uh, it, it allows you to think outside of the box. 
And I think that one a critical, um, I would say, event uh, in your life was obviously going to Tufts uh, in the early 90s, where you did your international relations, econ economics as well. Uh, and that was the time where, where you were exposed for the first time to the Internet. How was that? So uh, I remember when we were one of the first people to get email accounts in college and start sending email accounts and uh, sorry emails to each other. And I was so excited because at the time I had a girlfriend and she was remote and we couldn't afford to call each other, but we could afford to email. So we would write these long emails and sometimes the emails weren't real time and one email would cross uh, while the other one hasn't uh, arrived yet. The response hasn't arrived yet, and you would get them out of sync. Um, but it was a really exciting time, and it really, unlike all my friends that wanted to go to New York and become a banker and get into investment banking or consulting, I, I thought I really wanted to get involved in tech and uh, really get, get involved in the Internet space. And you actually did get involved, but uh, it was as a it was as a job, and it only lasted you know a huge amount of time, three months. So so tell us about this. Sure. So uh, there was an internet service provider in Los Angeles that gave me a job. So I flew from Boston to LA, and I started working with them, and I was doing sales. Um, and it was really interesting because I was learning about the internet. I was learning about T3s and T1 internet connections. I was learning about web hosting and how web pages are built and everything that goes along. And people were registering domain names every day. Um, so it was amazing. I was so passionate about it. It's just that my boss um, didn't believe always in paying on time. If I'd never gotten paid my commissions for doing sales work. Um, so it was quite frustrating. And uh, the arguments inside the office was really painful. So after three months, I said, you know what? I'm just going to go and do a web hosting business, not so dissimilar to his ISP business. But I'm going to do everything the exact opposite of his management style, because that was my only experience with management besides some internships in college. And it turned out that our version, doing the exact opposite of what he would have done, worked really well. He ended up going bankrupt a couple of years later. Our company ended up growing really fast and being sold. So what were the three things that you knew you were absolutely not going to do with, with this business, with HostPro? The first one was transparency in terms of how you treat your customers with pricing, advertising on your website. If they like it, they can buy it. If they want to cancel, they can cancel. There's no long-term contracts, no um, uh, swindling you into a deal that might not uh, be beneficial to you. The second one was transparency and integrity with your employees. If you give them a, com a compensation plan and they make their numbers, you pay them. And if anything, you up it with positive encouragement and bonuses and rewarding your best performers. Um, and the third one is a uh, relentless focus on product and product quality, like being extremely passionate about the quality of the service that you're providing. And that brings repeat visitor, uh, repeat customers. It creates virality. It is just so powerful when your product just works, when it has high quality built into it. So then why, obviously, you guys were growing. You were doing the good stuff that you learned that you were absolutely not going to do. And obviously, that paid well for the business. You didn't raise any outside capital. But why did you decide to go for an acquisition? Right. So in 99, so there was a couple of reasons. One is we were looking at some analytics 
And literally all the cash that we were spending on advertising, we were making 140% on average return on cash on cash basis that same month. So we were really excited about the business. We're like, this is unbelievable. Around 99 timeframe, we saw that percentage start coming down. 140 became 130, became 120. And at the time, we didn't know it, but that led to eventually becoming the 2000, 2001 bust of the internet uh, uh, boom, right? And as we saw these things starting to come down, we started getting a little bit concerned. Meanwhile, everybody wanted to be in the internet space, the VCs, uh, the investors, and um, uh, traditional companies wanted to acquire um, dot-com businesses. So... And combined with the fact that we were 25, 26 years old at the time, uh, we literally were very, very uh, living in a very frugal environment. Um, when you get some incredible offers and you're going to turn around and become a millionaire overnight, um, well, after three or four years of building a company, of course, but still uh, by doing a deal, that's when we decided that maybe it's the right time to take our chips off the table. Got it. And obviously you did this for about four years and the acquisition was 25 million. So not a bad outcome for, for you guys. It was a great outcome. We, we were very excited. I ended up buying the boat, the house and everything that goes along with it. But later I realized, you know, um, I'm a little bit of a workaholic. I'm an entrepreneur. I need to go and build. I can't just sit on the beach. That doesn't work for me. So after about six months, I was back and going and building the next company. And the next company is Knowledge Base. So let's talk about Knowledge Base and, you know, how you really came up or how you saw the opportunity where, you know, others saw problems and, and how you went about it. Yeah, so the difference in wages was incredible between different countries and outsourcing was becoming the new trend. And we looked at this and with call centers being outsourced to Philippines, to India, to all over the world, if you will, uh, we saw an opportunity to manage the knowledge that you need to take from your product development teams all the way to the call center agents that are taking calls. And so we built a company called Knowledge Base, and it was a great company. It, um, it was cash flow positive, but it was a niche play. It wasn't going to grow big. There was only so many call centers that had uh, this kind of a need for our product. And there was only so far that this product was going to go. So we decided that, you know, maybe we swung the pendulum from a commodity business web hosting way too far to a very proprietary knowledge management business for the enterprise. And maybe we need something more in the middle where we can have differentiated technology, but for it to be something that can be mass, uh, we can have mass adoption and to grow something big. So um, when the right partners came about uh, to buy Knowledge Base, we absolutely wanted to sell, wanted to get out so we can go and do the next business. And this was an outcome in the double digit millions. But, but one thing that's really interesting here, I know that you're not a big fan of, of taking outside capital if it's a niche uh, type of uh, approach. Why is this? It's a really good um, uh, question, actually, Alejandro. I have a friend named Jay. He was building a company in San Diego, and they got to 4 or $5 million a year in revenue. And suddenly, they went and raised money from Sequoia, the top-tier VC firm. And they start putting money to work, 
to try to grow, grow, grow. Sequoia was like, we're right behind you. Keep doing it. And after the money ran out, their revenue had just grown barely to $6 million. So it was also a niche business that was going to do five, six million dollars a year. And it wasn't a VC quality business. So the end result was because they had grown their infrastructure and the cost structure so much and the business hadn't grown, nobody wanted to fund the next round. And it eventually had to be sold in bankruptcy. So it was a sad story for me, but it's something that happens where uh, you know, either the VCs might misread it or the entrepreneurs trying too hard because the entrepreneur thinks their idea is the best and it's going to be huge. But if your business is not the right business for VC, then, and you bring in outside capital and you want to create that growth, then it's very possible that, uh, that might actually backfire. So then what would you say, Alex, that separates the category or the group of companies that are VC a fundable type of companies from those that are non uh, VC fundable uh, companies that should absolutely not go after you know this this type of investment you know such as the example that you were aligning. Yeah, so look, I think the good research on the total addressable market is really really important, and I'm not just saying oh yes, this market is billions of dollars according to Gardner. No, let's do a bottoms-up analysis. Let's really analyze how many people really would need this. What, how often would they buy this product? And what, what is the total addressable market? So you really want to nail that. And um, that is the primary indicator for a company to be um, uh, a good candidate for VC uh, funding. Because VCs that are putting in money, they're expecting, especially at an early stage, 10x, they're expecting 5x, they're expecting 20x their money. And they know that some of them will make it, but they that is what they're going into. So a good marriage, a good partnership is when you truly believe that your product and your service and the market you're going after, the problem you're solving is a uh, something big enough that you can do 5x, 10x return for your VC. And that is really important. Otherwise, you get into a bad marriage. And it's just it's just not a great outcome for anyone. Got it. And and going back to to here to your story. So after you did the the exit of of Knowledge Base, I know that uh, one day you were you were you came across YouTube, and this uh, opened your mind, and you know perhaps led to to your third company. So tell us about this. Sure. So we were watching YouTube, and I was looking at these at the time in two thousand six. There were these small thumbnail videos. And I'd been working on the internet from web hosting and delivering, trying to deliver videos since 96, right? But in 2006, I was like, wow, they're going to make video online a reality. You literally can watch good content for hours. This is, this is becoming real. And we said, we thought to ourselves that the big difference with an internet-based video is that it's bi-directional. You can ask for what you want to see and the system will deliver it to you. The minute you have bi-directional, now if you compare this with the old paradigm of broadcast TV, where you have to flip through 500 channels and it's painful, now you can think of a new interface where you can search for videos, you can watch what you want to watch, when you want to watch it on the right device without having to flip through 500 channels and having missed half the movie. 
So we, we thought that this is going to be a game changer. This is going to change the way people consume t- uh, video and entertainment online uh, drastically. And this is a very big business. And when we looked at that, we analyzed whether we should go into the user-generated content space, online video space, create content. And our core expertise from our web hosting days was infrastructure. So we decided that we're going to create a content delivery network with, uh, and towards the end, we had 47 locations in so many countries and we were delivering about 7 to 8% of all internet traffic, right? With customers like Twitter, Pinterest, Tumblr, ESPN, ABC, Hulu, Disney. So uh, we, we made that bet in 06. We built the infrastructure. We realized this is a big addressable market. We raised outside capital. And not only we raised VC funding, but we also balanced it with venture debt. And the reason we took venture debt is really interesting. We looked at our business. We were buying millions of dollars of servers, shipping them all over the world to Argentina, to France, to Spain, to uh, Japan, to Australia. And then our customers that were using our service globally were paying us a little bit of a monthly fee. So, our business was heavily cash flow negative, although the fundamental was really strong. So by raising venture debt, we were able to balance out customer payments with our payments to the bank and really fund our expansion and our growth of capital needs. Got it. And, you know, it's interesting that you're touching on venture debt um, because, you know, obviously there's there's ways of raising money that you can convert later into equity. I mean, such as the convertible notes that you could do at an early stage or maybe if you need a bridge. Uh, but venture debt, you know, obviously I find that it makes more sense if you're past a Series B financing. So what would you say are some of the pitfalls and things to keep in mind where when, when you're thinking about, you know, venture debt as a potential route to finance your business? Yeah, uh, it's actually a really good question. So sometimes banks dangle it in front of you. And I really think uh, a good venture debt or general debt strategy is one, as you pointed out, after your business has been proven, your product market fit has been proven, because you don't want to use debt instead of equity and take that kind of risk for the bank. The bank is not going to want it. It's not going to work out well for you. But if your business and product market fit has been proven, and there is a reason to finance certain items with venture debt to increase growth, and that totally makes sense. So let me give you some examples. If you are a hardware company, so at OpenPath, we make some hardware along with our mobile-based access services. There is a debate whether we should give the hardware to the customer for free as long as they subscribe to the service. The only way to economically align the cash flow of that is with debt. So if the business makes sense, if the lifetime value is there, if we can make more money by and acquire more customers by lowering the barrier to entry, then debt will be a good, uh, effective tool for that. Or at Edgecast, we uh, would use it to buy servers, but then our customers would pay us every month. We would pay the bank every month. It was a perfect alignment for that. But I don't recommend using debt instead of equity to just prove your business model because uh, um, I think that's way too risky. And talking about proving the business model, I know that, uh, you know, obviously for you and especially your experience as a founder, really going through that, 
phase of being in the desert, you know, just trying to find the water or trying to find that product market fit has been probably, I mean, it's one of the toughest uh, challenges for founders, but I know that for you, it was definitely, uh, you know, some of the experiences that were the most challenging for you. So, so tell us about this. Sure. So in our first company at HostPro, everything we tried would fail. We were losing and literally I was cold calling, it would fail. We tried banner ads, it would fail. We couldn't make it work. And I'm not going to bore you with the details, but long story short, after a lot of trial and error and banging our head against the wall, we found out that if we buy paper ads in magazines like Wired and PC Magazine and all the tech magazines at the time, and if you negotiate to get a one-year subscription deal where you do 12 ads, but you get it at half the price. And if your ad is on the right-hand side of the page, and if it's in color, and if it has an 800 number and a call to action, combined with sales team that is sitting there inside sales, low-cost sales uh, team that is order takers, that are sitting there taking orders from 5 a.m. to 11 p.m., that combination was working magic. We would put in $10,000 in advertising, would make uh, $14,000, 140% that same month. In knowledge base, we were dealing with enterprise sales. It was a completely different challenge. It's not about paper advertising or uh, things like that. But what we realized is these big call center managers, when they want to make a purchasing decision, they got to get two to three bids. And how do they go and research for that bit to see who else is doing it? Uh, they would go ahead and use Google and Yahoo. And at the time, literally Google's pay-per-click, we were sending them checks because they didn't have a portal for us to subscribe to do uh, keyword advertising. So we were advertising within Google and targeting these people when they knew they wanted the product. They were just trying to get two additional bids to check the box. And our strategy was, let them get exposed to us and we'll convince them why our solution is better. And we combined that with enterprise sales staff and we killed it. At uh, Edgecast, it was a different story because our customers cared about performance. At OpenPath, we work through channel. We don't even sell direct. We sell through a uh, list of uh, certified channel partners that install our mobile access solution. So for every company, we had to figure out that go-to-market, and it's a lot of trials and errors and really keeping uh, your finger on the pulse to figure out what combination works. Got it. So my next question here is, uh, you know, for the first time now, we're going to be able to, to set the record straight because there's been uh, different amounts that have been uh, reported on the media about the acquisition uh, from Verizon and, and so forth. So what, what were the terms of the deal here? Yeah, so the terms of the deal was 300 and I believe it was 360 or 70 million in cash and about 22 million worth of incentives for the founding team and the uh, senior executives and uh, key employees in the company. Uh, so all in, when we added it all up, it added up to $392 million in purchase price. Well, Three out of three companies, Alex. So I guess uh, quite a, a good a good outcome for Edgecast. And and here you guys, you know, had like a little bit over three hundred employees, and you started to see, you know, things growing. So I guess, you know, probably now being the third company and the third acquisition, was was there like I say like um like certain questions that you would ask yourself to know if it's the right time to sell or not, and if so, what what were those questions or what was that question that you would ask yourself? 
Yeah, so I think, look, it kind of depends on uh, your mindset. So some people like to go long, go take the company even public and go to different phases. Some people want to get out early and your personal situation, how it impacts your family, your financial, there's a lot of different moving pieces. But from a pure company perspective, as long as your company is growing and if the rate of growth is increasing, you're going to get incredible multiples on your revenue. If your rate of growth slows down or you start flatlining, the valuation of your company comes way down, like exponentially lower. And if you suddenly start declining, that's when nobody's going to want to buy a company that pretty soon is going to go to zero, right? So the whole difference is around your rate of growth. And I think that sometimes if your goal is to sell, for example, right now we're building open path. Our goal is not that at all. But if your goal is to sell a company, you might be better off selling a little bit sooner and you might make more money actually in the acquisition price because your growth rate is growing faster and you're going to command a higher multiple. Then if you wait a couple of years, even though you've grown the business, but if your growth rate has flatlined, and you can no longer command a growing company. And now your valuation is just, it drops. Got it. And here with Verizon, I mean, you did the, um, you know, one thing that I thought it was really interesting. So you actually stayed there for quite a bit, you know, without the need of, of, of having that locked up period or, or the vesting, you know, for that long. But you stayed for, for quite a bit, for like two years. Um, I think that here really you had the opportunity of seeing a larger corporation really being able to operate. I mean, with thousands of employees, you were used to seeing in the hundreds. Uh, but why did you do that? And what were some of the biggest insights that you got from seeing a company at this level of operation? Yeah, so I looked at Verizon as a Fortune 10, Fortune 15 company, right? A company with a $200 billion market cap, $120 billion a year in revenue that at the time we were spending, right? And when you think about that, um, I, I don't think, when I think about the journey of my life and as an entrepreneur building companies, I was like, this is one of the few chances I get to experience what is it like on the other side? What is it like to be in the Verizon executive team uh, running a big company? And um, there's about 300 vice presidents there that really run the entire, all the various divisions and the, the infrastructure. And if you're one of those, you're in all the critical meetings. And it was an amazing experience. I stayed there for two years. I wanted to see how decision-making is done, what is important, and your perspective changes, right? Uh, how they talk, how they have meetings, how do they do budgeting and allocations? Um, what, uh, what are their pain points? What are their weaknesses? And what are their strengths? And uh, after about two years of uh, being a student again, I, I really enjoyed uh, the experience, by the way. Uh, I decided that it was time. It was time to move on and start uh, another company. And talking about being a student, what was the lesson, the one lesson that you probably took away from you from, from being with Verizon for two years? Ah, let me give you a few quick ones. And um, if you have a meeting and you discuss anything that is under 10 million, you shouldn't be in that meeting as an executive. Um, if you are uh, trying to make decisions around uh, long-term products and projects, 
that is not always uh, what helps you in the company at the time, uh, because the company might have reorgs and changes in management and uh, strategies every quarter or every two quarters. So it becomes a challenge. It made me think that uh, large companies are much better set if they acquire uh, emerging technologies, because building them inside a big bureaucracy is a very challenging. Uh, politics is really interesting and it can work to your advantage or it could frustrate the heck out of you. Um, but a lot of times, large companies, they compete within themselves as opposed to competing with their competitors because really it's about the executive getting the next level promotions of brand upgrade. It's not about how well did you do against AT&T. Got it. Got it. And, and here, obviously, you uh, had the opportunity really of seeing you know, some inefficiencies that were happening with, with badges, you know, going from room to room and, and things like that. And obviously, uh, uh, you know, this led you into an industry that had, hadn't experienced any type of innovation in 30 to 40 years. So, um, so how was this for you? How did you go about, you know, really validating that idea and knowing or perhaps having some sort of like a, a thinking around the fact that you may be able to do something about it when others, you know, really were not that successful? Sure. So I was carrying eight badges and anytime I would switch, go to a different office uh, or certain parking lots, elevators, I would have to use these badges. And if you forget them, you're locked out. It's disaster. You're wasting hours. If you carry them, it literally weighs on you. It's like um, water torture, if you will. And then dangling more than a few badges in front of a door until you find the right one that opens the right door. It was just a pain point. So we started looking at this and we, we thought there must be a better way. We have a supercomputer in our pockets that is doing credit card transactions. And how come that can't open a door for me in a more secure, uh, frictionless way where uh, uh, I can have a delightful experience? So that is what we set out to do, and we built the entire hardware, software, and the cloud infrastructure for companies to synchronize with their directory service, say with their Active Directory or G Suite, and load in thousands of employees, send employees with one-click credentials so they can walk in and out. And you can have a thousand credentials on your phone and it doesn't take even any space. So you can attend, you can get into a thousand different buildings if you must. Um, and we, we saw ways where we can improve security. Uh, we can delight the user and we really can improve the overall experience. And once we did that, the result has been just phenomenal. Uh, the adoption rate, the virality, the customers that buy again and again for all their branch offices. It has been just amazing. So um, uh, we, we thought this is huge. This is a big market opportunity. And that's why we went and raised again um, uh, outside capital, because we think we can really impact the landscape. So how did you go about putting together the minimum viable product here and, and validating? Yeah, so we spent about two years in stealth mode, literally building the product. Uh, as a CEO, I have three objectives. Do, do I have a vision for what we want to do? Do we have the right people to execute on that strategy? Do we have cash to fund that strategy? So those are my three objectives. And what, I, uh, what we did was we combined uh, the founding team. We've been working together for uh, some of us 10, 20, 
uh, years plus, plus outside folks that are familiar with hardware and specifically within this industry. And we are indeed the product. We grab beta customers. We start testing it for close to a year. We're getting feedback from users about their mobile experience. Like what happens if your phone is locked? What happens if your phone is shut down or if your app is shut down? Um, so all of these different things, we started uh, testing and improving and improving until we were ready for public release. And then we released um, literally uh, a year and a half ago. Got it. And obviously, I mean, this was now the, um, the fourth company. So, I mean, around the block a few times that you've been. So, you know, probably this time around, you, you knew again that it was all about having the right people seated on the right seats. So how did you go about that? Yeah, so, you know, it really helps because all of our companies like at Edgecast, every single employee had stock options from the receptionist all the way to the top, right? So when we do well, we win and uh, everybody wins. And then they want to join us for the next thing and they want to join us earlier. So we have so many people that wanted to join, um, uh, which was really helpful because right now with the unemployment rate, it's quite hard to attract quality talent. And when you have people that you have been to battle together and you have had great outcomes, it kind of creates a different level of trust and passion and excitement about doing it again. So uh, we we brought people that share the same pain points and share the same passion around this and have experienced the same pain points. So uh, and then we worked really hard at it and we're still working very hard at it. I think we have some really exciting products that are coming out in 2020 and we're just going to take this space to a whole new level. Very cool. And how much capital have you guys raised? So we've raised close to $30 million dollars. Uh, for open path so far and um we um i think uh in time we'll probably even raise more down the road so we're really excited about it very nice very nice and obviously now you know fourth company the the three other ones you you've you build scale you know done the acquisition so now you know what it takes to do the full cycle and you know i'm sure that you're very well aware of the fact you know or how you're able to raise money today it's going to impact how you're able to either raise money tomorrow or to do the exit as well. Because, I mean, once you change the corporate structure, there's there's no turning back. So how did you go about onboarding those investors and making sure that you had the, the, the right type of investors with a similar and aligned agenda to yours? Sure. So um, our first institutional round, we actually, the founders, led the round. So we put in most of the round and then we gave a small allocation to uh, all of our local VCs in the LA area because we believe in the LA tech ecosystem. We want to support them. They've been with us in the past. We've done well together and we want to support them going forward. So um, Bonfire and Fika and um, Pritzker and Upfront and all these guys, um, Brian Stiebel. So they all got a, a allocation and they got to join for the journey. Um, our second round was really interesting. Uh, we Emergence Capital pinged us. And Emergence is one of those B2B SaaS VCs that has done it again and again. They have multiple 10x funds in a row. Uh, their latest IPO was Zoom, which was phenomenal. And Santi, who's on the board of Zoom, joined us, uh, I mean, called us. 
And for the first 45 minutes, he told us about our business. We were shocked. We were just listening. We were like, oh, my God, he's doing the pitch to us instead of us doing a pitch to him. <laughs> and he finished the conversation by saying, guys, I've had a thesis on this for two years. I've looked at everything that has come and gone. You guys are approaching it the right way, hitting the right market, and you guys are the right team behind it. What can we do together? So that was on a Friday night. On Monday, we presented at their partners meeting. By the following Friday or Saturday, we had the term sheet signed. And a week and a half later, we had it. Uh, we had a, a full round done for $20 million. And the reason we were so excited, because Emergence is a B2B SaaS company. And if you're in our world where you're selling to businesses and you have subscription-based revenue model, getting insight into how they look at things, metrics, numbers, subscriptions, uh, lifetime values, and everything else, it's so helpful. The second thing about them is they we did reference checks and we called to so many companies. The review on these guys was just phenomenal. It was, they're um, so entrepreneur-friendly. They take a long-term approach. They are not after a quick flip. And they've had so much success that they don't have chip on their shoulders. They really want to be supportive and do the right thing for the company. It was super refreshing. So we're really excited about doing the deal with Emergence. And uh, we've been heads down just growing the business, uh, adding customers, adding resellers. Um, and it's been quite exciting. That's amazing. And obviously now, you know, four companies, you've seen a lot of people, you've seen different teams, and also you've been able to really understand what works and what doesn't work when it comes to culture. So how, how, do, you, how do you think about culture, Alex? So the culture is really important to us, and it starts at the top and the founding team. The partners and I, we, uh, we build a flat organization. We don't like big hierarchies. We like everybody that rolls up their sleeves. When they ask me, what do you do at Open Path? I say mainly janitorial work. And it's indicative that we are all in it together. It's not like me ordering somebody to do something. We just work together as a cohesive team. The second thing about it that's really important to me is uh, we have experience. We've been around the block. We know how it's done. And we will fail if we rely on that. We have to have grit. We have to be hungry. We're competing with 22-year-olds that are um, that don't have a family and kids and can work, uh, you know, 24 by seven for months straight without sleeping. So, uh, and we have to be aware of that. And literally, we have to work really hard, not take anything, any advantage that we have for granted, and uh, execute by listening to our customers, but not deviating from the vision we have for where we want to go. Got it. And one, obviously, one important thing of a culture, which definitely comes across, you know, uh, speaking with you is that you always talk about we rather than I or me, which, uh, you know, obviously you're not only you do the talk, but it seems like you also do the walk. Alex. <laughs> well, I'm glad you noticed that. Uh, for me, it's natural, but I, I literally believe in the power of we. Uh, you know, with my founders, when we start a company, we divvy up the loot equally. So we say, hey, there's four of us. We get 25% each. Let's all put in X. 
it's not like a mindset where I get 80% and everybody else gets five, right? So that is how we approach things. We, from equity to ownership to decision-making, uh, we like to have folks involved. I actually get frustrated if we're moving fast, making decisions, and uh, somebody uh, hasn't been hurt, right? Uh, so we like that. Um, at some points, we try to divide and conquer so that we're not bogged down by committees. So my partner, Phil, that runs the entire sales infrastructure, or uh, my partner, Rob, that runs the uh, technology, or Kiran that runs marketing, or James that runs all of our biz dev initiatives and helps on marketing. We divide and conquer so we don't overlap and overstep on each other's toes. And I think that are, those are the best partnerships if you have complementary set of skills. But at the end of the day, it's a team effort. It's all about us. We're all doing it together and we all depend on each other. Absolutely. And one of the questions that I typically ask the guests that come on the show is, if you had the opportunity, I mean, we're talking now about four businesses, three exits, a ton of money raised as well from, from outside investors. If you had the opportunity to, to go back in time, and have a, a chat with your younger self. Maybe it's that younger Alex that uh, was about to touch the third month before you know, giving the notice to, to go at it as an entrepreneur. If you had the chance to speak to your younger self and give yourself one piece of business advice you know, before, let's say, launching a company, given what you know now, what would that be and why? You know, I always regret selling uh, all three of my companies. Um, and I could have, and, you know, regret is a waste of time. You just got to learn going forward. But when you look at my little competitors at Edgecast that were, they're still smaller than when Edgecast, when I left Edgecast, are now public with multi-billion dollar valuations, right? Like Fastly and Cloudflare. Uh, when I look in the web hosting space and it turned out to be, uh, AWS and Azure and, you know, the big tech started dominating it. That's what we were doing literally uh, 10 years before these guys. So um, I think that, hey, what could have been the opportunity if we had helped and gone long and raised the right capital with the right partners? But at the time, I didn't have the experience. I was 26 years old. Our management experience was very limited. Our um, M&A experience was limited. Our financing experience was limited. So I think the question would be different if me today were to go back in time or if I could just pass a note to that guy uh, back then. Um, but overall, uh, I've regretted selling, even though it has worked out amazingly well from a lifestyle and comfort and accomplishment. Uh, but that's why at Open Path, we want to go really long. We want to disrupt the space big time. Very cool. Well, Alex, for the folks that are listening, they're probably wondering what is the best way to, to get in touch or to reach out and say hi. What would you tell them? Oh, uh, openpath.com. My email is alex at openpath.com. And my Twitter handle is akazrani. Uh, you can reach us in any which way you prefer. Uh, happy to chat. Um, I do help out entrepreneurs. Uh, I do not invest in companies. I no longer do that. I only invest in VC funds that end up investing in tech companies because they know their job a lot better than I know my job as an investor. Um, but my whole focus is about building OpenPath. Amazing. Well, Alex, thank you so much for being on the DealMaker Show today.
Thank you. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.